0: As I was saying, I I do wish to um, make a few introductory comments about the Apostles' Creed. Um, I'm going to start with a citation from Scripture, uh, from Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is therefore profitable for instruction." This is in the Bible. Correction and training in doing what is right. So scripture isn't uh, just something uh, that you believe. It is also a true, uh, supposed to be a true statement about what the essential theme of scripture is, And I think that the Apostolic Creed is really a statement in brief of um, what the Creed uh, describes as the content of the Bible. You might put it this way. I have one for you too, Doug. In English classes, we, uh, students often read books. And uh, the teacher may say, after the book is read, now what's the theme of that book? Tell me what that book is all about. You don't have to repeat the whole book. You have to size it up and get at the theme. And uh, my sense is that the Apostolic Creed is getting at the theme. Of the whole text of the Bible. Not just of a piece of the Bible, but of the whole text of the Bible. Uh, you might also call it, uh, I like to do this because it's got an aesthetic ring to it. It's the fundamental motif of that large, large book. What is the theme, the fundamental motif? And the Apostolic Creed, coming uh, out of the 3rd century, um, I say A.D., I haven't conceded to see me. The Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 200, 300, 400. All of the churches are communicating with each other. And they're finally trying to say, what do we believe? so that this may be helpful in our understanding of the faith. Faith isn't just understanding, of course, in the Hebrew world. Um, But we need a statement about what the theme is, not because we want to generate and proliferate doctrines. That wasn't the idea. The idea is we have to state the theme because there are all kinds of people in the community that have significantly different ideas about what the theme is and we do have to say something about what it is not because there were some quite aberrant views emerging we've already talked about that in this class um so the Bible uses a very specific language and uh, the creed tries to repeat that language, tries to put it in concise and succinct form. It's always speaking about God, and that's the first major point I make, analogically. God isn't part of the creation. He's the creator of it all. He's outside of it. So what do we do to talk about him? We need some kind of analogies. Um, we call him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a being. Where does that language come from? It comes from human life and human experience. And then furthermore, where does it come from? It comes from the text in the church that we study all the time. The preacher doesn't preach from a novel. At least a few of them do, but not all preachers preach from novels. They preach from the text of Scripture. Which means that the analogies that we use have been chosen by the authors of Scripture. And the backup author who is helping, who is assisting, who is directing and guiding them. He even in the Old Testament speaks to some of them. He doesn't do that today, but he did it then. And so scripture collects all of these analogies. And those are the best ones that we have for talking about God. To call him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not just our choice. It's the choice of the authors of the biblical text. And in the background, I dare say, because I believe it, God himself, who has breathed into this text, who has guided this community who has been with all of the characters who have composed texts in this community. So the Apostolic Creed uses images borrowed from the main book of the church. And of course it's the main book of the church. It's the book from which every preacher in almost every church in Christianity preaches every Sunday. So I personally have no problem with God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I know some consider that uh, patriarchal, but I think of the fact that this text is composed by large generations from the past who thought many of these things together and we're also directed in some sense, that is mysterious, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I also say that God is the tremendous mystery. Religion is mysterious. We just better face it. God is a mystery. Rudolf Otto called him the Mysterium Tremendous, the tremendous mystery. Creation is a mystery. I frankly don't care what anyone says. It's mysterious. And one of the most mysterious elements is, where did evil come from? We do not really understand that. It came from, the story says, the willful disobedience of God's creatures. And I'm always quick to say when we say that, not just Adam and Eve. Because you remember the first verse of the genesis text is i'm going to surprise you which is the way jesus would have pronounced it in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and then sentence two verse two drops down to and the earth was waste and void it was like unformed clay and God goes to work at it nothing is said about the heavens and what happened there once in a while we get a hint in the rest of the Bible that there was a disturbance there and we know there was a disturbance there because the serpent the devil takes the form of the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and they fall into sin. They have, and I'm quite insistent on this, freedom of the will. We are created by God as responsible earthlings. So many of the bad things that happen have to do with what human beings have done. Cain kills Abel, for example. So many, many things are done within the creation itself that create disturbance. And that's how the text moves forward with the mystery of evil. That helps to understand it somewhat. It doesn't explain it thoroughly. Why did God give his creatures free will? We can't pursue that question. He did. And if you really want to explain most of it, you have to talk about what human beings did to human beings in the creation. That's the best we can do, the free will defense. I'm in support of my former colleagues' insistence on the freedom of the will, the freedom defense, he called it, Calvin Plantinga, very insightful because that's the best reason we can do it. It's not the only reason there is, and it doesn't solve the mystery but it helps to explain something. So God is the Mysterium Tremendum, and he has chosen language in Scripture that he thinks is most appropriate in our talking about him. So it is best to talk about him the way Scripture talks about him. So, what does the Apostles' Creed do when we ask, What's the theme of the Bible? After all, most people are familiar with most of the scriptures. Now, what's the basic theme of this book? Uh, If I were an English teacher, I would ask that question. I would ask that question as a theologian too when we're discussing the Apostolic Creed, which tries to tell us what the theme is. It says what the Father has done. It says what the Son has done and what the Holy Spirit has done. The bulk of it, as you may well have noticed, is on the second article, what the sun has done. And the reason for that is not that the sun is the primary member of the Trinity. He actually isn't. <laughs> he actually isn't. And he says so many times in terms of his being and person, He is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But in terms of his work, which is traced throughout the Bible, he is subordinate to the Father. And we see this in numerous places where he says to the Father, tell me what to do. And God says something to him and he is uncomfortable with it. Why do I have to go through This terrible experience of being persecuted, of being judged, of being condemned to death, of dying on a cross. And he sweats tears of blood. Because it's such a terrible thing that he has to go through and he asks to be delivered from it. And then he finally says, not my will, but thy will be done. So in his work, the son always acknowledges his subordination to the father, not in his being, not in his substance, but in his work. Very important to remember, even though the bulk of the creed is about the second article. We're gonna try to get to the end of the second article. We have already discussed in the class the bulk of the second article having to do with the sun. And I'm gonna try to get to that last statement at the bottom of my uh, handout uh, shortly. So the creed is an attempt to state the theme and is an attempt not to multiply doctrines but to ward off very strange positions that were emerging in the early church after the New Testament. We've already mentioned the the apocryphal books, which are not in the canon of Protestant churches. You look in your Bible, there's no apocryphal book. They're interesting to read. They're very strange. Many of them are very strange, but, but be that as it may, there are the apocryphal books There were the Gnostic Gospels. The biggest problem in the early church coming to the time of the formulation of the Apostolic Creed in the 3rd and 4th century sealed by the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed which is really a slight elaboration of the Apostolic Creed. The major controversies were ways in which the church said, we're not going in that direction. The church wasn't trying to pronounce doctrine. The church was just trying to say, this doesn't fit what the community is doing. And the Gnostics were the most serious offenders because they were saying, the physical, material, natural, bodily world in which we live is just plain bad but we have hope. We know that we didn't come from here. We know we came from the spiritual realm and we know that we will end up there again sometime when we pass on. We will join the spirit realm. We will be free of the bodily world. I could take a excursus here on uh, on uh, the whole concept of body, um, I tend to like the Hebrew view, not the Greek view. We're working in the Christian church with the Greek view. There's a body and there's a soul, Plato, Aristotle. No, 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 these are not two pieces of the human being, if you take everything that human beings do and look at it from an earthly point of view, uh, from an earthly perspective, from a horizontal perspective, in the Hebrew world you call that the body. If, on the other hand, you take it all that's going on in the world, and you look at it from a vertical perspective, you call it the soul, I am a living soul, you see. So these are not two parts of a whole. These are two different ways of taking a look at the same thing. And that's why, as I said in the last meeting, In an aside comment, the British do not refer to what you put in a coffin as a body. That's not the body. That is at best the dead body. And more precisely, it's the remains of what human beings were all about on earth. And it turns into dust. In the Netherlands, in a moist climate, It all disappears in five years. Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. The Dutch too, do not call it the body. They call it the stuff that's left. That's stuff like overstock. And it's not much, it's hardly anything at all. And even the teeth eventually disappear. Very important to remember So anyway, the theme of the scriptures is spoken in the apostolic creed. And I say it has three parts. The theme has three parts under 2B. The theme is naturally creation, which also has the fall story wrapped up in it. That's the first theme, or that's the first part of the theme of the Bible. The second part is redemption. I call it recompense, I'll say something about that shortly. And the third part is called the restoration of creation. That's what's going to happen in the consummation. The creation isn't going to be bye-bye. Christ is gonna come and he's not gonna say bye-bye to the creation. Those who are in the realm of the dead will be resurrected the world will be restored and the creation will become what it was supposed to be. (laughs) Creation, redemption, consummation. Three words, the theme of the Bible. Repeated in a very fine way in the Apostolic Creed with the bulk of it being given to the second person of the Trinity, because, because, and this is the only reason, we're just coming out of the New Testament period. We're just coming out of it, and in the New Testament, I was going to show you this, folks. See this Bible? Twenty percent of it is the New Testament. Seventy. Nine percent of it is the Old Testament. Jesus was Jewish. He never saw a New Testament. He never dreamed of a New Testament. He says, search the scriptures, for it is they that speak of me. What do you think he was talking about? He was talking about this big piece right here. The Old Testament. With which, with which he was very familiar, amazingly enough. All through his life, when he had become a little older, not yet 30, he was seen in the synagogue talking with the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees who knew this part thoroughly, and he was conversing with them it's more than likely that he knew how to read Hebrew. He didn't speak Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. But it is likely because he looked at the scrolls that he knew how to read Hebrew. And of course he didn't have a New Testament, many, I would say 75% of the things that Jesus said come from his Bible, this piece of the Bible. Very interesting to remember, he didn't have a New Testament. What's happening or what's happened to Christianity where that little piece of the Bible Becomes the whole story. All we talk about is Jesus, but Jesus is the Son of God, and His Bible was this thing right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where do you think that came from? It came from Psalm 22. He knew the Bible, the Old Testament, So thoroughly that he could recite it, and he did again and again. Throughout his messages were all reflections back onto the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is an extremely important document, and the church shouldn't neglect it. We should preach on it more often than we do. Frequently, as a matter of fact. But the Christian church does not. Very interesting book. By Brent Sean. He puts the title mildly. The Old Testament is dying. And when he gets going in this book, he says, folks, it's dead. It's dead. It's not being paid attention to. And the New Testament has become the exclusive focus. And then we're not even treating All of the uncomfortable stuff in the New Testament. People don't want to hear from the Old Testament because there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in the Old Testament. If you're patient and you struggle with it, you can come to understand it. For example, I was thinking this morning, God is the creator and author of the good of all things that are good. Why wouldn't he be mad when bad things happen? As a faithful, honorable God who is true to his word and what he has done, he needs to express discomfort with the evil that is done in the world. That's the normal reaction for a deity who has said, I created the good, I am for the good, I will defend the good and watch out if you don't do it so there is the anger of god in the old testament of course there is because he's being consistent with who he is when he sees evil he's not going to smile and he's not going to say he's going to get angry we're uncomfortable with the angry stuff in the old testament so we skip it we skip all kinds of things in the old testament I'm going to recommend to Sean that we read the Ten Commandments every Sunday. We should read the Ten Commandments every Sunday. We used to, as a matter of in this Church, read them once in a while. But this is a very, very good reflection of the heart of the Old Testament, the Word of God. The recommendations of God about how to live. I've been in business for quite a long time. I can tell you one thing, it doesn't work to cheat. It works once in a while a little bit. But you try running a business, cheating other people, in the long run, you will go down. It's much better for business, to be honest. So somehow, within the created order of the world, God has put this reality. Even though sometimes we don't understand it when we do amiss, our lives don't get better. They typically get messed up. So we should read the Ten Commandments. We should read the Old Testament. We should continue with the Old Testament. The theme of Scripture is creation. Fall, redemption, and the restoration of creation. Watch my time here. Um, another thing I'd like to suggest, um, if there are any comments or questions, um, I like them. I used to teach in the classroom and I got comments uh, all the way along. It's uh, probably the only way to learn to focus to focus with the audience. of the audience may just be hearing what you're saying and not getting it, or maybe even not agreeing with it. I've always told my students, I don't care if you disagree. Say so and we'll talk about it because that's what an educational institution is all about. You're supposed to consider the options and I can't know all the options I can't cover everything. You may be covering something I couldn't cover. So talk, say something, ask questions. It's a good thing. We often, uh, in these sessions, don't have enough time to do that. And that's the difficulty. We should uh, probably have done this series in 10 weeks instead of five. And then we would have this back and forth. We would be able to have the back and forth. No, you don't. You have a question. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's just a minor. Uh, apostolic is the adjective. Apostle is the noun. Uh, this is the creed of the apostles. Uh, the questioner, I'm supposed to be a preacher question, the questioner is asking why we, we use the word apostolic instead of apostles pretty. Uh, apostolic is the adjective. Apostles is the uh, nominative. These are the teachings that came up out of the immediate followers of Jesus and were and became widespread in the Christian churches. So they're... Emerged a consensus about what is appropriate, and the only thing that the church wished to do is to ward off the aberrations. Gnosticism, in my judgment, being the worst. And that has something to do with what I did my doctoral work on, but I won't get into that as Sean did not get into his. <laughs> the New Testament, then. Here you have a development in the history of Christianity that is, of course, novel. Some have said appropriately that in the New Testament there is no creed but Christ. I would say that's a fairly decent summary. But that decent summary which we see perpetuated even into the modern world I think of the evangelical world I think of especially the fundamentalist world do you believe in Jesus Um, excuse me excuse me there's more to it than that do you believe in God is the first question and who is God Father Son and Holy Spirit and Jesus played a role in the work that God did in the world And the role was to mediate in the redemption of the world. That was his role. And that became focused on in the New Testament. We have to now, after the New Testament and the Creed does it, put it in its proper context. There are three articles of the Apostles' Creed. The second article is of course important and because we're coming out of the New Testament period, it's the largest article. It does cover all of the things that are claimed in the creed. But nonetheless, it's a statement that needs to be put in its proper context. And so I say the required elucidation by the church, because Jesus needs to be understood in the context of the entire scripture. The Apostles' Creed is a required elucidation on the part of the church in the 3rd and 4th century that Jesus needed to be put in proper context. I'm always, I, I make these asides, but I did this with my students too, as I have already said, this was Jesus' in the Bible, not this. He never heard of this. Guess what? His name wasn't Jesus either. When his mother called him in for lunch, She went to the back door and said, Joshua, lunchtime. He was a Hebrew. And the name of Jesus, excuse me, the name of the second person incarnate was Joshua. That's the Hebrew and the Aramaic. How did we get to the word Jesus? And here you have the Greeks. The Greek translation of Joshua is Asus, which into English turns into Jesus. If someone had called him Jesus in his lifetime, he wouldn't have even turned around. Another indication that we're deeply wrapped up in the Hebraic world of the Old Testament. He spoke Aramaic. Aramaic is a dialect of Hebrew, but he was thoroughly a break even his name yes sir I would guess so that the translation into, into many many foreign languages They would call him Jesus, Yes, because it's a Greek term. Well, they're not as interesting. <laughs> but uh, if they were to say it, they wouldn't say Jesus, they would say Yahshua. Yahshua. Yeah. Yes. I Yes. Uh, I'm not heavy into the uh, woke race and gender stuff. But I would say it is important for the church to remember that Jesus was Jewish. He wasn't a white man. He wasn't an African American either. He was a Semite. He looked like a Semite. The New Testament even says he wasn't even that good looking. He was a not too good looking semite. Of course, nothing wrong with that. All of these differences of races are good. When you walk into a garden and you see five different kinds of flowers, what do you say about each one? Oh, they're beautiful. So the differentiation is a, is a great thing, but we do have to remember that God worked through the Hebrews and ancient Israel and Jesus was a Jew, he spoke Aramaic, he did not speak Greek. I won't make strong claims about that. Uh, He after all was the God man and if he had had to, he could possibly have come up with it, but he was trained in Aramaic and Hebrew. So to put him in the proper scene context, biblical context we have to maintain the structure of the apostolic creed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that order, not forgetting any one of the persons and not forgetting the works of any one of those persons. So the main To maintain the proper context, the work of the Father is first and must be at the beginning. This is the only Bible Jesus ever knew, and it was ordered in that way. Father in creation comes first in the Bible. And it's very interesting to notice that in the composition of the biblical canon, there was a considerable controversy Where do we put this new document called the New Testament? And there were many who said, that's the most important thing there is. You should put it at the beginning of the canon. And the church mulled this over and said to itself, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't work. The, I call it the Older Testament, comes first. And it is the context in which the Newer Testament gets its meaning. So you have to order it in that way. And there is a lot there, Jesus' Bible, that has to be put first. And isn't it, of course, logical to begin with the beginning? I always say that. Genesis, that's the beginning. Why wouldn't you start there? It even identifies itself as god's work in the beginning so to maintain the proper context of the second article of the apostolic creed the work of the father is placed first and must be told at the beginning this is how the only bible jesus ever knew is ordered the father and creation first and then there's pressure in the fourth century to put the newer testament first in the scriptural canon it was resoundingly resoundingly rejected by those who finally put the bible together we don't really have a complete canon until the fourth or fifth century we have pieces we don't even have the new testament until at least the second century because the apostles took notes Right? They took notes, they had diaries, they wrote things down. And then finally, most of their disciples were the ones who also took notes and put it all together. We don't really have a New Testament until the third century. And by the third or fourth century, people agree on what's generally being used in a widespread way in the Christian communities in that part of the globe. And those were the canonical documents. There was debate. No question about the fact that there was debate and there always has been debate. I'll give you an example. Luther didn't believe that the book of James should have been in the New Testament. Why? James believes in good works. And Paul says we are saved by grace. <laughs> And James is, get this, the brother of Jesus, and he knows better. Good works are what is required of us on the other side of being saved. You see, Jesus says to people that he heals, go out, at least to those who have committed significant sins and sin no more. In other words, do what is right, do what is just, do what is holy. So to maintain the proper context for the second article of the Creed, uh, the work of the Father is first and must be put at the beginning. Now I, in the last 15 minutes that we have, want to get to where we ended last time uh, with the last article, the last comment or set of comments of the second article having to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I find this article astonishing and I find it uh, reflective of the comments that I have made. Just consider it for the moment. I am going to read it. He suffered, of course. He was persecuted. He was judged. He was condemned to death. He was crucified. And he died on the cross. He was terrified by it. But he did it for the sake of the Father. To pay for the sins of mankind. It's interesting that in the New Testament he is always... Or often called the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of mankind. A total pickup on the Old Testament. Because what is the major ritual in the Old Testament? Sacrifice. And it's often the sacrifice of lambs and rams because God's anger at sin, God's justice about sin Needs to be recompensed. And it's recompensed by sacrifice. Human beings all over the face of the world have sinned. And become indebted to God for the sin that they have done. How could a human being recompense for that? No human being could because the sin is infinite. So there had to be someone who was both human and divine who could die as a recompense for sin. And that is the story of the incarnation. Jesus is the great atonement because no human individual could have done it and no being who was only divine could have done it. It had to be a being who was both human and divine at the same time. The great teacher of that, the great formulator of that in the Middle of the Ages was Anselm of Canterbury, and I think it is a correct perception of why Jesus had to die on the cross to recompense for the sin of all mankind. On the third day after he died, he rose again from the dead. Talk about mysteries. Most people don't step up out of their graves. We can't understand it. I can't understand it. We don't have to understand it, really. Uh, it is a tremendous mystery. We have to, in many respects, just live with it. We understand the context within the Old Testament. A sacrifice had to be made. God's wrath had to be appeased in the recompense of the death of Jesus on the cross on the third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven he goes to be with the father in heaven he leaves the earthly realm isn't there God in the earthly realm now we're getting to the Holy Spirit because when Jesus leaves the Holy Spirit comes into the picture that's the next and third article We'll be talking about that in the subsequent week. He is seated at the right hand of God. The Father Almighty. Familiar words. A total reflection back to the first article, I believe, in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He goes to heaven... And after 40 days, of course, on earth, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, or from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. What is his work going to be? Judgment. Woo. Woo. We don't like that stuff in the Old Testament. But it is what Jesus will come and do when he returns upon the clouds of heaven. We are back to God the Father Almighty. And Jesus becomes his right-hand person, one might say, because he has dexterity. You know, the word for it is dexterous, the right hand. He has facility. He knows what he's doing. He's been there. He's seen all. So he's God's right-hand person in judging the living and the dead. Christ is now his right-hand person. Primary task? To judge using the Father's law or the Father's word. Someone once said to me, every word that comes out of the mouth of God is law. God doesn't have opinions. If God says something, that's it. You better do it. And he started talking in Genesis 1. Let there be. And guess what? There was. God's word is also the law. And in the Old Testament, that is consolidated, especially in the book of Exodus, in the form of the Ten Commandments, which is called the Torah, in ancient Hebrew. The law of God is the Torah of creation. God even builds it into the fabric of creation. I love C.S. Lewis. Uh, mere Christianity. You couldn't read a better book about the theme of Christianity. I don't think. You know what C.S. Lewis calls this? The Tao of creation. Creation has a Tao. If you were a Hebrew, you would say creation has a Torah. I mentioned this uh, previously. Try to do something that isn't right. Does it work? Usually not. Try to lie. Try to steal. Try not to (laughs) honor your father and your mother. A lot of that happened in this day and age it ain't good it ain't helpful the creation is pushing us in a different direction we don't even understand it but from our experience we see that creation has an order built into it and the Torah is the summary of that order or as Lewis says the Tao of creation pay attention to it there are people all over the face of the earth that live according To the Tao of creation or some of the Tao of creation they attend to what the world is telling them in all kinds of things I think of medicine in the Orient just think of the whole tradition of herbal medicine in the Orient the whole tradition of meditation there isn't nothing to it there's a great deal to it and you have to Listen. And they did. The Native Americans, guess what they did? When animals got sick, what did they do? They watched them. They watched what they ate. And got better. So the creation is always sending out a message. And if you want to put that message in words, you have the Torah. You have the Ten Commandments. And then after Exodus 20, interestingly enough, you have all kinds of commentary. All kinds of commentary by the priests. And it's called the Mishnah. All kinds of laying out of what the implications of the Ten Commandments are. Because it wants to make people alert to The Torah of God, which is embedded in the creation, isn't just a bunch of words. It can also be put into words, of course. So, what works and what doesn't work has to do with the creator and the Tao of creation. Christ has not eliminated the Torah. This is an interesting controversy in modern post-reformation Protestantism. If you read Paul, and Paul only, you never read one author only, but if Paul is read only, there's a lot of condemnation of the law. And the people that stick to the law, follow the law, teach the law, preach the law, always argue the law are the Pharisees. They're not good people. They're legalists. It's one thing to attend to the Decalogue. It's another thing to be a legalist, to be a nitpicker, right? When the Canaanites in Jericho come to Rahab and ask, are you hiding any Israelites? She said, no. Was she lying? She made a judgment on the basis of the law to do the greater good. So the law, as a technical, as a written formulation, is trying to get at something that's out there and in many respects beyond us. Some of it we sense, some some of it we intuit, some of it we see working in the creative order. And so it is on the basis of this that Christ is going to come to judge the living and the dead Christ has not and I quote Matthew 5:18 very important for, for to be neglected Christ has not eliminated one jot or tittle from the Torah he says it himself I didn't come away to undo the Torah I came to tell you, what the heart of it is, and where it came from and where it's going. Uh, What restoration means, what redemption means, what conversion and salvation means. It means listening to the God of creation and his Torah, the Tao of creation. Anyway, I hate to end with only five minutes left, but let's have some observations, questions, comments. Um, no, go ahead. So, mind and strengthen your neighbor as yourself, which is a really good statement of the Torah and the Ten Commandments, He doesn't always Yes. um, The the question is, uh, wouldn't it be simpler simply to refer to Jesus' admonition to love your neighbor as yourself? Um, One could say that. I think there is an element of judgment that human beings need to make in various circumstances in which they find themselves. So they have to do some unpacking of it. Uh, Did Rahab love her neighbor as herself? Yeah, she did. She violated one of the Ten Commandments, but she did, by the judgment of Scripture, do the greater good. I think the pray right, and a lot of it comes from from the the sounds themselves in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yes, does the Lord's Prayer, in effect, do the same Mm -hmm. thing as the Apostles' Creed beginning with the work of the Father? and ending with the work of the Son and an appeal to the Father. Yeah, I think that's correct. This theme is repeated in many contexts throughout the Old Testament. And there's a good case of the Psalms. You ought to use the Psalms. Jesus uses them all the time. You don't always identify where he gets what he says. But uh, 75% of the time, it's out of the Old Testament which he knew quite thoroughly. So we need to keep the Old Testament. Great book. The Old Testament is dying. And when Brent Sean gets going, he says, folks, it's dead. We need sermons on the Old Testament. We need a recitation of the Decalogue in our worship services just as it is appropriate to have a recitation of the apostolic Creed, we need to keep thinking about the bible of jesus about which he said search the scriptures search the scriptures because it is they that speak of me yes Very, yeah, Philip Yancey, uh, he uh, wrote a book uh, called The Bible that Jesus Read, and uh, saying roughly, in somewhat different ways, what we have talked about here today in this class. Good point. This is a heavy-duty book, and I wouldn't recommend it uh, because this person uh, does all kinds of scientific things. It's very interesting that he um, discusses at length the Pew studies on religion in the United States and analyzes the sermons that are being preached. Eighty-three percent of the sermons that are being preached in the United States are from the New Testament, the smallest part of the Bible. Yes? Brent Strong, S-T-R-A-W-N, Brent A. Strong, The Old Testament is dying. And when he gets really brave, he says, it's dead folks. And he does it using information from the Pew studies on religion in the United States. So he's looking at where things go. And it's not as if it isn't happening right in our own presence. We don't do it deliberately, but we slip into it, you see. And I think there are ways to protect against it. We used to read the Decalogue um, once in a while, probably once a month. Uh, we should try to do it again, to learn about the Tao of creation. Uh, Yes? Yes. Sounds harsh. Yes, the question is, has Jesus' role changed after the ascension into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Yes, the role has. It hasn't changed. It has been focused on the final element you see there are a whole series of things that he has done but now's the time to look at whether people have listened or not because you can't not listen with impunity Uh, what God says he means because he is good and so God will always defend the good even if that requires a degree of anger and wrath and judgment my wife does a lot of work in prison ministry i'm all for it todd Chofi spoke here a couple of weeks ago it's a great ministry but we should never forget that prisoners are there for a certain purpose we can't of course throw them in the cage and throw the key away that's not the idea but they are there, first and foremost, for recompense. To put the record right. They pay for their crime. And that's a piece of it. That's not the whole of it. In many uh, penal systems in the United States, that has become the whole of it. There also has to be this element of rehabilitation. I visited Angola State Penitentiary ten years ago which was the worst penitentiary in the United States. And Burrow Kane, who was the warden, said to me, Henry, when I got here at uh, the state penitentiary, they took prisoners, they stuck them in a cage, and they threw the key away. But there has to be Rehabilitation and the only way to rehabilitate is Jesus Christ. And he's the one that started in the United States the rehabilitation programs that are taking place now in many places. And Calvin College has a program in Ionia State Penitentiary which gives inmates an AB degree after five years of study. They will become college graduates. Ministry. Christ. The Christ. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's important not to separate the word Jesus from Christ or Christ from, well, you can. Yes. You can use the word Christ as the second person of the trinity, but the incarnate second person of the trinity is not Jesus, but Jesus Christ. Important to Joshua, the redemptor. Anyway, we're over time. (laughs) You're welcome, you're welcome.